0: Or visit preborn.com.
1: Jenna Ellis
0: in the morning on American Family Radio.
2: Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America.
0: The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview.
1: Fill that void with the vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you
2: and give. Doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump, Jenna
0: Ellis. Well, there is a tyrannical assault on parental rights coming out of the state of California. That is the headline from World Magazine Opinions. And the California Transgender Bill is the next step in a long war. On Human Nature and Human Flourishing. The piece goes on to say the sexual revolution was always coming for our children and its most fervent proponents are no longer trying to hide it. The California legislature has passed a bill requiring judges in cases of contested child custody to consider whether a parent has affirmed a child's quote unquote gender identity or gender expression. Parents who do not support their child's self-declared transgender identity may lose their parental rights and custody. This bill is not dead on arrival. Uh, is not a dead on arrival proposal from an obscure state legislator. It is about to be the law of the most populous state in the nation. If a father does not want his teen daughter to shoot herself up with testosterone or have her breasts amputated, then California considers him an unfit parent. If a mother does not want her son to be chemically and then surgically castrated, California views that the equivalent of child abuse. Treating parents as enemies was the inevitable conclusion of the transgender movement's premises which declare that children are being born into the wrong bodies and are destined for lives of misery. And this, of course, goes against the biblical worldview. So joining me now to discuss is a parent himself, my good friend, Robbie Starbuck from the great state of Tennessee and host of the Robbie Starbuck Show. Uh, Robbie, this is just the, the next step in the complete and total absurdity and rejection of biological reality.
1: Yeah, and it's not just a rejection of biological reality. There's a rejection of God and, and goodness and, and everything that has made humanity strong, you know, and I think that the parent-child relationship is a core to that. Um, if you look at Marxist revolutions all over the world, one of the first things they go after and where they really win their quote-unquote revolutions is in the separation of children and the parents. You know, um, they did this in Cuba where my family's from. They, they went into the schools and, say, confuse children about reality and convince them to report on their own parents. You know, it sounds absurd on its face because, like, what child are you going to convince to report their parents? But this is just as absurd in its reality because this is is human nature. When you have a trusted individual and, unfortunately, kids are are sort of raised with this idea that certain people are just going to be implicitly trusted and they come in and tell you that these wild things are facts and this is reality and they spend eight to ten hours a day with them i mean really dangerous things start to happen and and i think that there's sort of a reckoning going on where parents are realizing how well do i know my child's teacher you know um how well do i know these trusted individuals around them. We just had a case here in Franklin, Tennessee, where a soccer coach was arrested. He had been sexually abusing kids for over a decade, and they're still looking for victims, you know, that we're well over a dozen victims. And, you know, these people are in these positions for a reason, and it's on us as parents to figure out why they're there, who they are, and are they actually somebody trustworthy who is going to respect our values as a family?
0: Absolutely. And this is also an assault on parental rights. I mean, the fact that a judge would take into account in a child custody determination that a parent is deemed to be unfit because they won't affirm the a a child's uh, gender selection or supposed gender selection and who knows who's even influencing this child And, and and to say that that is now a factor in the decision making of a court and and of adults i mean this is something that is so ridiculous and preposterous even within the context of um of schools and how uh teachers talk to children, but to actually bring this out now in a court of law and actually compel judges to make these types of determinations based on the law is, I think, another step as well into, as, as you rightly point out, um, total rejection of God. But this is also a, a breach and an attack on parental rights as well.
1: Yeah, and you know this better than anybody, Jenna. This is lawfare. I mean, the Democrats know how to use lawfare better than anybody. They use the law, they weaponize it, and they, to be frank, they don't get enough credit from our side for how brutal and sadistic they are when it comes to their willingness to use any and every tool to destroy their opposition. Whereas on our side... It seems like a lot of our politicians are a lot better on going on Fox News and doing, you know, a quick five-minute hit there where they say, well, this is hypocritical. I don't like this. This is bad. They're doing this. They're criminals, and they do nothing about it. The other side, meanwhile, you know, they arrest their political opponents for no reason, in my opinion, and, you know, it it, it turns into these ludicrous bills where they're, they're literally setting up to steal children. One thing that flew under the radar because they passed this crazy bill, is they also passed another bill that allows – the state to take children as young as 12 years old into shelters without parental consent or notification at all, including LGBTQ plus shelters, where the child can then be transitioned by the state. Okay, that passed the same day. And this is the Democratic Party now look no further than like, you know, this case in New Mexico, where the governor has now suspended the Constitution effectively, and told people they don't have their Second Amendment rights the Democrats want to take away every right that matters to us. They want to take away everything that makes America special because that's the only way you can create the chaos necessary to create the Marxist country they want to live in.
0: Yeah, that's so well said. I'm speaking with Robbie Starbuck, who is the host of the Robbie Starbuck show and a former candidate for Congress out of Tennessee district five. And uh, this is just the next step toward their inevitable Attempt toward a, a Marxist revolution and this idea that children belong to the state because everything that you're describing in both of these bills uh, from California it is exactly that fundamental premise instead of respecting parental rights that our Constitution upholds, it's a matter of, well, if you're deemed an unfit parent because you won't go along with our Marxism, then we are going to foreclose your basic fundamental right to direct uh, the health, safety, and and welfare and, and upbringing of your own children. And the left, you're absolutely right, through lawfare, through legislation, through actually getting things done. I've said for a while that Democrats want to be world changers more than Republicans do at this point, if we're talking just about the silos of the two parties, because all that Republicans can do is send a strongly worded letter and, you know, like you said, maybe go on a news hit for five minutes. But what are we actually accomplishing in terms of protecting rights in various states and pushing back even on extremists like California? Who's going to stand up and sue uh, for for these bills uh, to to be declared unconstitutional in a court of law, I mean maybe hopefully someone, but what we have to actually look at what's going on in this country, and instead of just taking a back seat and saying, well, um, you know, I'll just move out of California then, and uh, and I think some parents can and should, but we have to go a step further and elect the right people and continue to push back on uh, some of these absolutely un-American propositions.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that there is no question that we've got to take a stand at some point. And I think that that's going to come in these primaries. We've got to choose people who are action oriented, who, you know, can be held accountable and honestly stop choosing politicians, start choosing people who go out there and are doing this because they care so much about our country that they don't want to see it fall for our children. And I think that that's, that's really one of the most important things that we can do going forward, because I think as time goes on, if this continues, people are going to have less and less faith in the system and their ability to actually save this country.
0: Yeah. And uh, and that's really a dark day in in America when we're looking at all of the losses and all of the ground being seeded and conservatives generally uh, we are trying to conserve everything that is good and right and exceptional about this country but if all we're doing is defending then we'll continue to lose ground and we have to continue to to be on uh, the the side that is saying we are going to oppose all of this and we are going to make headway. And I don't really see that coming out of Washington. I think the best uh, possible pushback is state sovereignty and people in states standing up at their local school board meetings, in their local legislators, in their local townships and saying, you know, enough is enough. And we want to make our voices heard and elect the right people and do the right things, because I don't think the solutions are coming out of Washington.
1: No, they're not going to. I think I think states' rights uh, are, are really paramount And, this. You know, COVID didn't teach people that. I don't know what will, um, because that made readily apparent I think to anyone who was paying attention and had a brain that you know who you elected for governor for mayor um, those things mattered a whole lot more than who was president because your your mayor your governor they could protect where you lived and they could stop the insanity where you lived. Uh, For the most part, you know, I mean, you were still going to experience inflation and things like that, but they were able to keep a mask off your kid's face. They were able to keep your workplace from firing you for not getting a vaccine, you know, things along those lines. And so I think that people need to, to pay heed to that and make sure that their focus is in the right place.
0: Yeah. So speaking of the mask mandates, how is Tennessee doing? Um, I know that there has been some there have been a couple of of states like uh, an elementary school district in Maryland that's bringing back uh, masks for school children. There's talk about, um, you know, maybe another federal mask mandate on airplanes. Um, That means I'm probably not going to fly for a while. If that comes out, I'll be happy to to just stay here in the free state of Florida. But uh, how is Tennessee doing along those lines?
1: You know, I'm over my dead body. Is it going to happen? I mean, we're not, we're not doing it here. We, we stopped it last time. We'll stop it again. It's, we won't let it happen. Any politician who gets on board with that, um, in the Republican party, and this is a Republican supermajority state, we will make sure it does not win an election. Any politician who went for it last time that, um, they kind of crossed us with, they, they didn't win their reelection. So, you know, it's not going to happen.
0: That's that's excellent, and and nor should it. I mean, if we didn't learn our lesson in 2020, and this was just a couple of years ago, it's fascinating to me, uh, Robbie Starbuck, he's the host of the Robbie Starbuck Show, that we, we're trying to rewrite history just a couple of years later. I mean, this isn't even something that happened so far in the past that some people don't remember it or didn't live through it or uh, didn't understand what was going on. I mean, this was literally just three years ago, and yet we now have... Uh, these governors like the the one in New Mexico that's attempting to use the exact same type of emergency powers to then push through a gun violence agenda. The next thing that will be coming is the climate agenda and all of these things. And, and yet there are still states that are not recognizing the threats that this poses to American freedoms and liberties. And so in just the last two minutes I have um, here with you, Robbie, you know, overall, um, how how can. Parents like you um, be more involved in their states so that uh, they, they become more like Tennessee, like Florida, and, and like um, the states where parents actually have a voice and can stand up and say, hey, last time this happened, uh, you know, we are completely rejecting that. We're not going to let it happen again.
1: Yeah, start with the simplest things. Request the curriculum at your kid's school. Request to see it. Request to see are they teaching CSE, which is comprehensive sexual education. Uh, it's not like the sex ed when we were kids. I mean, this stuff is insane. You wouldn't believe the stuff that's in these CSE programs. Um, you know, and you've got to get to know your kid's teacher. I know this sounds crazy, but most parents, they just send their kids to school and they never really get to know anything about their kid's teacher. Um, this person spending eight to 10 hours a day with your child you should know them really well. I mean, like, you should know at least what are their political values, what where do where they stand on things, are they going to try to push things on your kids? You know, I think these are reasonable things at this point in time to want to know, given the fact that we've got teachers all over the Internet talking about how they're secretly teaching kids not to tell their parents things and you know, that they can switch genders and, and things along these lines. You've got to really feel confident. If you see one of these blue haired people, you know, with like 15 piercings in their face when you walk into the first day of school, um, don't be a coward. Walk, Turn around, walk out, and do not leave your kid with that person for 8 to 10 hours a day.
0: Yeah, it's it's very simple. So, Robbie Starbuck, thanks so much for joining. You can catch him, uh, the host of The Robbie Starbuck Show, and also on social media, including X, formerly known as Twitter. So we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
1: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio.
0: Well, this week will feature a series of public hearings on artificial intelligence, and all eyes will be on the closed door gathering convened by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. So Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, and the titans of tech will talk artificial intelligence in private at the Capitol Summit in a closed-door meeting tomorrow on Wednesday. All 100 senators will hear from Elon Musk, who bought Twitter and rebranded it as X. And we're still getting used to that, by the way. When you just say X, it, it nobody really knows what you're talking about, so we always have to say formerly known as. It's like, you know... The, the artist formerly known as Prince, but um, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates, um, among others, the CEO of ChatGBT and a host of other prominent tech leaders will attend what has been dubbed the inaugural artificial intelligence insight forum and the senate brainstorming sessions will run throughout the fall so what can we expect really any progress from this Uh, what is going on so our good friend from the heritage foundation jake denton joins me now so uh, jake your thoughts on this capital summit starting tomorrow
3: yeah, well, it's uh, pretty kind of crazy in D.C. right now with all these people coming to town. There's certainly a, a lot of interest now in AI this week as they're returning from recess. But, uh, you know, really what this uh, indicates is that, you know, industry is going to shape this AI conversation much more than we probably previously thought. Uh, this is a, a closed-door briefing, as you mentioned, um, but they are going through model legislation and asking for insight. They're not even really at a position where they can float policy proposals to these tech executives, they're really just coming to listen. Um, This isn't going to be a space where the senators can even throw questions from our understanding at the tech representatives. They're just there to hear from the tech executives and then, you know, meeting concluded. And so, uh, you know, these aren't necessarily AI experts. They're representatives of some of the largest businesses in the world with AI products. Um, So they're not really going to get groundbreaking insights on the state of the technology uh, more just you know what can the senators do for their bottom line, which is not really a great way to you know shape maybe the policy uh, conversation to date of our time. Uh, so kind of a, tr- a troubling position we're in right now.
0: Yeah, it seems like it. And interestingly, I think um, you know Elon Musk has been probably the most outspoken, at least. Uh, you know, at least from what I've seen, and, and you're obviously more specifically in the tech policy space. So, you know, maybe you can you can correct me if, if this is wrong. But from what I've seen, you know, Elon has been the one to, to really call out AI as a really big threat to human existence and certainly Western civilization. But I haven't really seen that from some of these other names that are there in terms of, uh, the the concern and the immediacy of that. So what do we possibly expect, at least uh, potentially from a presentation from Elon Musk?
3: Yeah, you know, Elon has been probably the biggest proponent of AI safety mechanisms. He's probably one of the only, you know, reasonable voices in the room at this type of event. Um, and, you know, he's going to probably be pushing for what we call, uh, you know, lifting the black box from these AI models. Um, so right now, the way these systems work is there's essentially a veil over its decision-making process. You can't actually audit or understand how it came to its conclusion. And when we're deploying these into sensitive areas like healthcare or even the defense industry to something these senators will be interested in, we're going to have to know how they're reaching these decisions if we're going to trust them. Um, and so that's something that Elon's pushing forward. But you know, his peers in the room are big proponents of these black box models because it allows for them to you know, rapidly grow these models, rapidly deploy these technologies without really too much regard for safety. Um, and, you know, that's bad for all of us, but it's great for their shareholders. And that's kind of all they seem to really care about. Um, and then, you know, aside from that, you obviously have the risk uh, that's been ongoing for years, it sounds like, between Elon and Sundar from Google uh, over kind of their debate of how AI could potentially be a, a new god for humans sundar has some really you know crazy stances on that if you look into that but elon's been one uh, to kind of push back on that and say that you know the tech should serve us versus you know we serving the tech so um it's definitely uh, going to be a debate in that room they're not going to be aligned on uh, too many things but uh they're all going to be pushing for policies that help their businesses
0: Interesting. And I'm speaking with uh, Jake Denton, who is in tech policy with the Heritage Foundation in D.C., and I hadn't really heard anything um, a- as far as like AI being a new god. Uh, what, I- what exactly is, is the advocacy or the proposition there?
3: Yeah, Sundar's, uh, it's kind of a hard one to follow, obviously. Uh, it's this kind of school in, in Silicon Valley that is pushing for uh, you know, AI maximalism, and, you know, if that means that humans are in service of this machine, uh, then that was the natural order of things. And uh, it's really kind of the the furthest possible version of sci-fi that you can get into. Um, but, you know, there's essentially two schools of thought, the one where, you know, the AI alarmism that we could potentially end up at this scenario where we're enslaved by these systems. And then there's the other school of thought where it's like, If that is, you know, the direction we're going, then so be it. And, you know, that's the natural order of things. So uh, Sundar is kind of the the AI maximalist type where we should deploy this as quick as possible. We should let it go everywhere. And, you know, if that means that humans are, you know, servant to the AI, then so be it. And Elon is the other school where it's kind of like we should pump the brakes and make sure that this is, you know, helpful for the human uh, experience, uplifts us. Uh, brings out more flourishing rather than, you know, being subservient to it.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting to to have, uh, you know, somebody who's even advocating that this would just be the natural order of things when obviously, you know, this this wouldn't be possible without tech Progress, if you want to term it that way. So, um, you know, just in in the way that you're describing it, um, I would personally reject that school of thought and say, you know, this is obviously something that is is created. And so it's subservient to the creator, just like human beings should be um, subservient to our creator. Um, God and and to to use technology in a way that does promote human flourishing. But this is where we then um, where philosophy always comes into the picture. And we always have to go back to who defines good. What does good look like and who makes those determinations? And so, you know, a lot of these these senators um, and certainly not everyone, but, you know, a lot of them, including Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, you know, they're they're their age is is definitely a factor here because, um, you know, can they potentially even um, understand what is going on in terms of the possible threats of AI and recognizing the technology and some of these things? Um, is that a concern? Because even in some of the hearings that I've watched um, over the last few years on various tech and social media, it's clear that some of these senators are not familiar at all with the technology. They haven't used it. And they're just relying on aides to basically relay the information. And then they're making determinations for the country, for defense, for national defense, for legislation. Uh, is that a concern?
3: Yeah, you know, age is a huge issue here. Uh, this is the same body of governing uh, our leaders here. Uh, that could never figure out the dot-com bubble, right? I mean, we still have lingering issues like Section 230. We've never been able to amend for you know Web 2 or 3.0. Uh, you look at the the same group hasn't been able to solve for TikTok. That's still an ongoing problem. And now you throw in uh, something like AI, and I can just tell you firsthand from having briefed a lot of these individuals from you know meetings all across the city, even people who you would believe would be the brightest of bright cannot comprehend the advanced computer science discussions that these kind of tech leaders come in and give them. And so you can't push back on maybe a misdirection that a tech leader is giving you or um, a misrepresentation of the technology just because you don't have a computer science 101 understanding of what's going on here. And then it just gets worse and worse the older they get because, you know, the same senator who has never touched Twitter or Facebook and can't figure that out can't ever imagine typing in a question to chat GPT or having to deal with an AI hiring manager. I mean, these are people who will never have to sit through a customer service representative that's a robot. Um, And so like they just miss all these pain points. They don't have the same questions that we would have. And then these meetings are occurring behind closed doors with no cameras from as far as we know. Um, And so the public can't chime in and correct course, uh, you know, there is no fact-checking body. As much as we hate fact-checkers, uh, you know these senators are going to be led astray, um, and it's going to shape our future. So this is a huge issue. They don't necessarily have the skill set necessary to sort through all this information, um, but they're in charge of how this all ends up. So uh, we have to hope that they're able to depend upon these aides, and um, you know we're certainly doing a lot at the Heritage Foundation to give them resources to navigate this, but. Uh, There's a lot going on all at once here, and uh, it's going to require much more than a couple of briefings and, you know, putting pen to paper.
0: Yeah. And, you know, this uh, Jake Denton is is why I have always been a very strong advocate for uh, for the the statesman rather than the career politician, because even if, you know, they're um, a younger individual and, you know, they've they've only uh, been in. Uh, in Congress or the Senate for a few terms, a lot of these people are coming up as a career politicians who haven't ever really been in the real world with a real job understanding a lot of these problems that and there is this separation of the elitism in Washington and regular America. And that type of bubble isn't just a talking point for you know a lot of of us who are in regular america but it um it shows the the difference between what they can actually legislate on from a knowledge perspective uh and uh, compared to just relying on their aides and how it used to be in the very beginning when our founders contemplated that we, the people, would participate in our government. It was supposed to be a part-time thing where you're part of the the Congress, but then you go home and you actually have a real job, you have a real life, you don't just uh, work entirely in government so that you are separated from that kind of real life. and so. Um, you know, I, I just think that that's another fascinating element to all of this. Um, but what in terms of your advocacy with the Heritage Foundation and in tech policy uh, would you like to see in terms of the, the Senate in particular with these hearings, but Congress overall um, legislating and, and at least contemplating some of this tech policy like with AI?
3: Yeah, you know, these hearings are very important because it's allowing them to go through the motions of learning this technology and understanding uh, the issue in a a more broader context. But what I'd like to see the most is us not spending two to three years of knowledge gathering and learning and, you know, actually build a a solid foundation here for us to have this technology uh, reach the real world and not, you know, hurt the American people. Uh, There's things ready to go right now, very common, understandable uh, AI pillars that we're just waiting and, you know, trying to learn more when uh, this is stuff we should have had signed into law two to three years ago. Uh, Something like explainable AI goes back to that black box model um, that we were discussing earlier, breaking that down, making sure that if, you know, AI is in a healthcare environment, that the practitioner can actually understand why the AI is doing what it's doing. You'd think that that is just like a commonly accepted, everyone would be on board with that but it's something that we can't even begin to debate here. Um, And so that explainable AI type of foundation is what you need to legislate on the fringe cases, labor issues, discrimination cases. If you can't understand how it reached that conclusion, you're never going to be able to put a law around it. So, uh, you know, we have to start with a strong foundation. We can't go straight to the symptoms of uh, the problem. We have to go right at the disease. We have to regulate and legislate around the core technology and then take it to the fringes of, you know, what about in the hiring process? So I'd like to see them actually have a battle plan, I guess, is the uh, what we're looking for here.
0: Yeah, well I mean that's that's a lot to ask unfortunately from from Congress right you know to actually uh, know what they're doing and and have a plan instead of just kind of bumbling their way through it but uh, but but we can hope so uh, Jig Denton with uh, the Heritage Foundation in tech policy and um, in just the last two minutes I have with you here how far behind are we in terms of contemplating all these things? And I hope, like you said, it doesn't take um, you know three years of just information gathering and Congress moving at the slowest pace of you know almost like an academic committee.
3: I'd say we're incredibly far behind. Years uh, probably is the best metric if you think about it. in just the core terms of this technology, eventually, we're going to have to lay down foundational legislation, regulation, and these technologies likely won't be compliant with that tech. And so, what will have to happen, essentially, unless they give carve-outs, which isn't unheard of for these tech industries, is for us to basically take a step backwards and fix the uh, kind of issues, the regulatory concerns with all of these different products so that they can then proceed. Uh, But a lot of these have not been constructed in a way that would be uh, kind of compliant within the ideal regulatory or legislative framework, and they're going to have to undo that. So, Uh, We're very far behind because China has been building from a strong foundation from the beginning. Every single model that goes to the public is going through a regulatory review and a content review. Um, They're not going to have to go backwards. Uh, They can just chug right along. So uh, the longer we wait, the more likely it is we're going to have to take a bigger step backwards.
0: Wow. Well, and and if anyone wants to get involved, um, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who are very interested in tech policy that are listening right now. Uh, What would be your suggestion on the best way that they can get involved and kind of try to bridge the gap between real America and the elitism in Washington?
3: Yeah, you know, the biggest thing that a lot of people still don't really do is just call their congressman, call their senator and tell them about why they're concerned, what they're experiencing in the congressional district or the state, um, you know, is it a big issue for you that your doctor's office is switching to an AI model that, you know, doesn't have privacy cons- uh, security disclosures, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of those types of issues, those things that pop into your head that you're worried about, if you call and let them know that, you know, you're concerned in the district, they're more inclined to actually do something about it. And so we can push here in Washington for them, but uh, the real uh, kind of eagerness comes from the district. If you're able to give them a sense that, their people care about it. They're actually kind of incentivized to do something. So yeah, I call your representatives. Yeah,
0: down. yeah. Jake Denton, tech policy with the Heritage Foundation. You can follow him on X. And you know, we continue to say, just call your legislators. That that is kind of the over and over and over again mantra. But a lot of people don't do it. So uh, do that, and we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Did you know that every day, Preborn's network of clinics experiences 200 miracles? How? Preborn gives women with unplanned pregnancies a window into their womb through free ultrasounds, introducing them to the beautiful life growing inside. Once she meets her child inside her womb and hears their heartbeat, the chance of her baby's life doubles. Because of the generosity of you and me, who donate just $28 to sponsor an ultrasound, Preborn can do this. The cost of a dinner can save a life, the most worthwhile investment you can make. All gifts are tax deductible and go entirely to saving babies. Someday you may meet a baby that you rescued and you can give them a hug. Or maybe they'll give you a hug. Maybe they'll even save your life as they grow and pursue meaningful careers. One thing is for sure, you will never regret saving a child's life because life is a miracle. Please donate your best gift today. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com.
3: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American family radio.
1: You just stop and think about it for a minute, right? Okay. If you don't want Christian nationalism, what other kind of nationalism do you want? Yeah. Right. Do, do, Do you want, you know, secular nationalism muslim nationalism you know and or if it's not the christianity that's the problem is it the nationalism that's the problem if we don't want nationalism what do we want do we want globalism you know no thank you please
0: (laughs) right so china in charge yeah
1: exactly (laughs) you know so yeah it it does sound like a bunch of scary christian nationalism and
0: so what you're right christians are the only ones who are told to check their worldview at the door That was Vadi Bakum talking to Ali Beth Stuckey about Christian nationalism. And uh, that fuller broadcast is actually really fascinating. But this whole conversation about Christian nationalism has uh, continued to pop up in various circles. And I think a lot of it is frankly a distraction and it's meant to be divisive, Uh, but I think we need to continue to address it as Christians because we need to understand what the conversation is about and how we can and should respond biblically. So joining me for this discussion is my good friend Ryan Helfenbein, who is the Vice President of Communications at Liberty University. And Ryan, um, you are one of my favorite people to, to just talk through theological issues and Uh, practical worldview issues and the impact on civil society um, because you were there at Liberty University. Um, You've been a very dear friend for many years. And on Christian nationalism, I wrote a thread on X yesterday, kind of responding to some of this because it's been trending on social media for a while. It's obviously uh, been discussed on a lot of Christian network podcasts and various shows. And I think one of the key problems in the national conversation is a failure to define our term before debating it. And a lot of what I'm seeing in the general discussion among Christians is actually agreement on probably 95% of the issue, but perceived de- a dissent based on failure to upfront define terms before debating them. So then this sets up an easy straw man for the left to then come at us and say, well, look at how much you all disagree over this term Christian nationalism.
2: Yeah, you, I know I totally agree, Jenna. Thank you, by the way, friend, for having me on today and, and talk about this important issue. Uh, you know, I would say, yes, defining terms are very, very important. The one thing we have to be careful of is understanding the origin of this this conversation in the first place, and that actually goes back a few years before Christians even engaged in this debate or this discussion. It became our kind of parochial in-house issue. Um it was actually a design play by the left, and what they were trying to do is create something to, to hang Christians on, so to speak, and creating this boogeyman and this straw man. And similar to 2016, the, the, the famous statement about, that Hillary made about the deplorables, it was this idea that there is this boogeyman group out there that is seeking to impose all kinds of civic and civil religion and morality upon people, and they're going to, if you allow them, it, it, the, the most pernicious, pernicious evil uh, of racism, misogyny, right? All all kinds of abuses that would be foisted upon the uh, the public in the name of religion. And the reality is completely different. By contrast, what we see is is immorality. We see all kinds of turmoil in our education system. We see public schools that have been turned into strip clubs, you know, uh, we, we see public libraries where drag queens are reading in front of children, and we think, okay, and yet Christian nationalism is the boogeyman we all need to be afraid of. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so there, there are some arguments here, and the definitions, the problem with some of these definitions is, you know, you'll have some that say, well, you know, this is really about a greater Christian society and a culture in which the larger backdrop of the culture agrees on these common virtues, similar to what we had a hundred years ago. Um, And it's not about a denominational identity, oh, society's going to be run by the Episcopalians, or society's going to be run by the Catholics, or society's going to be run by the Southern Baptists. But instead, we have a common understanding of a triune God who created the universe, and by the way, granted us these freedoms that don't come from government, and we then write these freedoms down enshrined in some kind of a document I don't know like the Constitution let's say and we agree upon those things but then we also say hey there are limits there are limiting principles here too we don't practice child sacrifice and human sacrifice in the United States other religions have done that we don't uh, we don't burn widows uh, when when a, when a man dies and his household is left behind we don't burn widows like they did in India prior to the great uh, Missionary movement from England. Uh, we don't uh, we don't allow Sharia law. We don't stone um, a teenage girl because she's been raped. So there are kind, There are all kinds of impositions, uh, civic laws that have been put in place because of the influence of the Christian faith. And I think people, when they're debating these issues, are taking so many of these things for granted because they don't actually have a common understanding of law like you do. Or American history or civics. Mm,
0: really well said. And, you know, every time you see a nation that is actually making progress toward greater human flourishing, greater genuine equality, a greater liberty and freedom, it's always because there has been more influence from Christianity and a biblical worldview. Everything that you're describing um, from a historical perspective was before the influence of Christianity. And certainly we can point out some exceptions to that in terms of some people who in the name of christ committed atrocities but that would go against the biblical framework and the biblical worldview and 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 one of the main problems that i see with even debating christian nationalism is this idea that the proponents of it are advocating for a theocracy, or this idea that we wanna bring back blasphemy Mm -hmm. laws, or the compulsion from the state to force a state religion if if you separate and leave church and its jurisdiction in its proper place, which is what Jefferson meant in his letter to the Danbury church, the separation of church and state is a jurisdictional question. It's an authority question. We're still pursuant to Romans 13, all under the authority of God, but the civil government still has to operate according to an objective moral premise. And one of the things that the left has done very well is confused the state of civil law and civil society into a pluralistic, relativist, post-truth society so that when we as Christians say we have to have a moral objective definition to good and virtue and the measurable difference between right and wrong, good and evil, so that we can outlaw uh, things like child sacrifice, like drag queen story time, like say that, no, our children shouldn't um, be submitted to pornography in schools. Then suddenly it's, oh, you're imposing your religion on me. And yet our founders understood that we all had a unanimous recognition of an objective definition of virtue and whose virtue it is. And if the laws of nature and of nature's God are the premise of the founding of our country, then we need to recognize God. And we also need to recognize natural law. Everything that the left wants to do is unnatural. And I mean, when you're talking yeah. about homosexual marriage, when you're talking about abortion, when you're talking about gender affirmation, all these, every single thing that the left wants to do, particularly in the realm of the sexual revolution, is unnatural. So I think we need to get away from this debate of what Christian nationalism actually means and come back to what are we doing as a civil society?
2: Yeah, that's that's 100% right. And you, no society lasts without a common set of morality, uh, common set of virtues and principles that that everybody can identify and adhere to. Um, you, you know, you go back to Eisenhower uh, right after uh, World War II. He becomes president of the United States right after Truman, uh, and he basically says, "America needs a religion." Now, he didn't care which so long as we had one, uh, because he saw fascism. And by the way, that was in the name of secular humanism. There are others today that want to repaint that and say, well, that was Christianity. Oh, no, 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 sir. That Joseph Goebbels might have tried to, to linchpin upon religion in order to unite the common German people under, under Hitler, but the reality was this was secular humanism at its worst, and also Stalin, and also Mao. These were godless, uh, people who behaved in such a way they killed hundreds of millions of people um, under, under the flag of the state. Um, and so Eisenhower actually gets baptized as president of the United States. He wanted to demonstrate as the American president that the American nation is a Christian nation. And by example, he wanted to be baptized. He was baptized on Christmas Day. Um, and so we, we have to look back and say, well, wait a second, this is modern times, but you go back to the 1700s, and the precursor uh, to the American Revolution was the First Great Awakening. It was the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, religious liberty was an invention not of atheists or secular humanists or classic liberals, because none exist, but existed back then. Religious liberty was invented by Christians uh, who put an end to the slave trade, Christians who, who marched for civil rights, Christians. So we have to recognize that when things were off and when there were human atrocities, it was Christians who stepped in and led the way, ultimately, uh, for, for the cause of truth and for justice and in the love of Christ. And so I, I, there is a there is a secular revisionism taking place, in which the culprit and the boogeyman now are Christians. And you have to ask the question why? Why now? After all the things that are happening, are now Christians vilified? And I think part of the part of the reason is they don't want um, any of the. Um, any of the ground that was lost or was ceded over the past, say, five decades to be reclaimed uh, by the Christian faith and by Christians in the civic and public arena. They want us to be outcast, they want us to be a pariah, and they want uh, Christianity to be, to, to be tantamount with racism and to be fully vilified and demonized. I think that's the issue. And so I will say, my caution to anybody out there, I won't own the word Christian nationalist simply because it is a loaded term and a pejorative they've already uh claimed that term um and there's there's very redeemable redeemable qualities to it uh am I am I a pro um national sovereignty of course I am am I am I pro Christian faith absolutely do I want to oppose my religion and mass convert everybody no I want people to surrender themselves to the gospel and to come to faith in Christ. But I myself cannot baptize the whole nation. That's ridiculous. So here we are in this debate, and we are distracted by it. I'll just say one more thing, Jenna. In Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the last times, and he says that even the elect will be deceived in those moments. And I think it's Matthew 24, verse 24. But I think that's the moment that we're in right now. We are in the last times, and I think that there are a lot of people confused about what is going on around them, and they're trying to interpret reality. And I think that often Christians succumb to some of these arguments because they don't know their own history.
0: Mm, so, so well said. And everyone listening can now understand why Ryan is one of my favorite people to uh, to talk through a lot of these things with, because um, that is such a great admonition. Uh, Ryan Helfenbein, uh, VP of Communications at Liberty University and great theologian. And and I think your admonition is really well said, that we can't just take these terms that are thrown at us and think that we have to either fully embrace or re- Reject this this term that is very nebulous, it is supposed to be, I think, uh, divisive, and that's what the left and the opponents are suggesting. And like what, what you also uh, very eloquently and, and artfully said, Ryan, I also think that part of this, uh, this intentional dismissal of Christian influence in our society is so that a godless form of Marxism can take hold and undermine Western civilization, not just in America, but also across Europe and you know, all of these uh, different nations that have had a basis in the biblical worldview in their historical past, and specifically the United States. Because if we are under a federal headship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, not that the church controls the state, but understanding Romans 13, that all authority is God's and that he, under his limited authority that he delegates to the civil government to promote good, restrain evil, our understanding of his jurisdictional power within the realm of civil government has to be the mandate for America and is in fact the mandate for America if we look back at our founding then we will understand why the left wants to completely destroy our history. They don't want 1776 they want to go back to you know, the, the 1819 project and all of these things that are specifically intended to excise God from our history and from ultimately our civil law so that we don't have a Christian moral code. We have a secular humanist uh, Marxist and cultural Marxist one. So we need to continue to have this conversation. We're already out of time, but I'll be talking to my good friend uh, Grant Castleberry on my podcast about this same topic later today. You can find that at the Jenna Ellis Show.com. You can always reach me, Jenna at afr.net, and continue to rightfully divide truth from error and to continue to promote the truth of the gospel of Christ.
2: The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.
0: We'd like to thank our sponsors, including Preborn. Preborn has rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day their network clinics rescue 200 babies' lives. Will you join Preborn in loving and supporting young moms in crisis? Save a life today. Go to preborn.com.